0: This is Purple Radio on demand.
1: Hello and welcome to the first sports feed conducted virtually. My name is Ben Sharp and I'll be your host for today. I'll be I'll be joined today by my co-host Archie Hodgson, as well as our regular pundits Luke Power, Joshua Nichols and Ben Rochford. We've got a packed show for you today with boxing, golf, horse racing and American football interview, as well as our new feature and anyway, business. But first, the first sports headlines.
2: The first thing on many people's minds is the return of the Premier League which is back with a bang on Wednesday as Aston Villa welcome Sheffield United and Manchester City host Arsenal. One of the biggest talking points is the timescale that the resumed season will be completed in. The last games are scheduled for the 26th of July, which means that some teams will be playing 10 games in under a month and a half. The first teams to return to train and did so on the 19th of May. Let's just hope they're in tip-top shape by now for what will be quite a hectic conclusion to the season, with the relegation battle and top four race looking pretty intense. Elsewhere in boxing, Dillian White is taking legal action against the WBC after Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua's two-fight showdown has been agreed in principle. White is the mandatory challenger for Fury's WBC belt and has been in that position nearly 1,000 days and was told that he would have a shot at the title before February 2021. That being said, we can't be 100% sure that the Joshua Fury contest will even go ahead. Joshua is scheduled to face the IBF mandatory challenger Kubrat Puli while Fury must beat Deontay Wilder again. Meanwhile for any keen runners, the Great North Run has been cancelled. More than 55,000 people more motivated than me were due to run the half marathon in September, the most ever, but organisers have made the decision after struggling to find any suitable way to implement social distancing. Would-be runners are eligible for refunds or can transfer their entry to next year. And finally, Grunt all you like about video games, but they are fun, and George Russell of Williams has been crowned Formula One's virtual eSports champion after winning the virtual Montreal Grand Prix. Runner-up Alex Albon might feel a little bit hard done by after a glitch meant that his car disappeared twice during the race. Maybe he can count his lucky stars, though, and be satisfied that such a problem will never occur in real life. That's all from the headlines. Back to Ben.
1: Thank you, Josh. Now, I've got an interesting, uh, interesting interview coming up with Pat about boxing, and we'll be looking, discussing the AJ Fury fight, Wilder Fury, the Shakur-Stevenson fight, as well as whether Bob Arum will, will continue to promote after losing money for the Sh- Stevenson fight. Let's talk about your amateur career a little bit how far do you intend to go with that how what sort of level are you at at the moment
3: well um so I've had about 10 10 amateur fights um and uh f- whatever I would have liked to have a few more than that but it's not really worked out for me um I've just had quite a few injuries over the years um so I'm 22 now and I'm actually looking to turn professional. Um, and that was actually planned for this year, but obviously because of the uh, pandemic and everything, uh, it's not happened, but we're ready to go ahead as soon as uh, the the you know the, uh, restrictions are lifted.
1: What are your aspirations then as a professional? What's your goal as a professional? Because we all have goals in life and obviously they're important to set.
3: Yeah, um, well, I just want to go as far as I can really, you know. Like I, I don't think there's anything that'll stop me from getting to you know really the highest level, and like the people around me are confident that we can do that as well. You know, so I've, I've got my uh, degree. as a chemical engineer now, we just finished it. So, you know, I've I've that's like sort of decent career set up for me right there. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be going for it if. Uh, I didn't think it, you know, I had a, a decent, decent shot of getting somewhere with it.
1: Um, now going to professional boxing, I'd like to talk about the AJ Fury fight that's been agreed. But do you think they will get past their mandatory fights against P- Kubrat Pulev and Deontay Wilder, respectively? I'm particularly worried as, a, as an AJ fan that he will struggle against Pulev as Pulev has only lost once against the prime Vladimir Klitschko. What do you think, Pat?
3: Um, well, Pulev, he's, uh, he's a shorter guy. His knees, he's somewhere around, well, he's not really short, short for a heavyweight. <laughs> six foot two, six foot three, something like that. Um, I think with a big size difference, he's always going to have a decent chance against him. I think when uh, Klitschko knocked him out, didn't, didn't he? And yes. um, he, he really flattened him with the left hook. So I, I, I don't see any reason why Joshua couldn't get through that.
1: Um, while the Fury 3, and I repeat, 3, looks like it's heading to Australia in the new year, where do you think the AJ Fury fight should be held, and where do you think it will be held?
3: It's got to be held in the UK, doesn't it?
1: I mean, I'd love to say it would be held in the UK, but as you know, in boxing, money talks?
3: Well, yeah, you say that, but, I mean, we sell a lot of pay-per-views over here in the UK. If they've got it on Sky Pay-Per-View, and it's at a UK time... You know, I think that, that, that brings in the most money, television, really. So, I mean, unless they're playing, you know, places like Saudi Arabia and places that are always trying to offer daft money to get things to happen there. But, um, you know, they'd really have to be offering a lot of money if they if they want it, you know, over there.
1: I mean, it is a two-fight deal, so we could see one in the UK and one in yeah. another country. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. Just sorry, talking about the future, talking about the future, Shakur Stevenson beat Felix Carabello. Are we looking at a future pound for pound superstar, only twenty two years old, WBO Fulkweight champion, an Olympic silver medalist from Rio twenty yeah. sixteen?
3: No. How he, good. He's he's really good. I actually watched that fight and uh, yeah, he's 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 just a master of distance. And I think he's been working with Andre Ward, so you yeah, know that'll do him really well.
1: Yeah, I mean, Andre Ward is a class fighter. I mean, he's been yeah. accused of being boring in the past, but if you're effective, what's mm-hmm. the problem?
3: Yeah. Um,
1: uh... What is testament to Stevenson's talent is that Robson Ramirez, who beat him at Rio, lost his pro debut. So the guy who won gold at Rio, somehow lost yeah. his pro debut, and Stevenson's now world champion. Is there a huge gap between the pro and amateur levels, or do you think it really does depend on the fighter?
3: Um, well, I think it... I mean. If you look at Vasily Lomachenko, he was 396-1 and in the amateurs, and he came over and won a world title in his third fight, challenged it for his second fight. So the highest levels in the amateurs are actually at a higher level than, you know, a lot of levels in in the pro game. Um, But obviously, amateur fights, they're they're three rounds. Um, you You can nick an amateur fight just through having a high work rate. So... I wouldn't take too much from that, you know, especially on a massive stage like that.
1: Okay, thank you. And finally, just a quick question about boxing promotion. And obviously you'll Mm. obviously be looking to sign with somebody in the near future being a professional. Um, The future of boxing promotion looks in jeopardy. Bob Arum lost money holding the Stevenson fight. I don't worry about Top Rank, RM's promoting, promoting company going out of business, but smaller promotion companies such as Goodwin Promotions and Haymaker Promotions no longer being financially viable. Do you agree with that due to COVID?
3: Um, maybe at the minute, yeah, but um, as time goes on, I think things will get back to normality. I think you know it's, it's been sort of heading this way for a while since Matchroom got the big deal with Sky. And um, they used to show you know, cards from all different promoters before. So, I mean, we'll just have to see because it's all about TV. If these small promoters can get their, you know, their fights on TV, they can start earning a bit more money.
1: And finally, what one piece of advice would you give to any aspiring boxer?
3: <sighs> Train hard every day. <laughs> no <laughs> stop. <laughs> no days okay. <laughs>
1: okay, thanks, Pat, for the interview. Really appreciate it. Now to Archie Hodgson to discuss the football with Joshua Nicol and Luke Power.
0: Cheers, Ben. Uh, as Josh mentioned in the, in the headlines at the start, there's excitement for English football fans this week as the, the Premier League and Championship return after three months. Um, Josh, how excited are you for, for the to be a return to action?
2: I mean, I've, I've found myself, and I'm sure a lot of people have found themselves just rewatching old football games during lockdown well well all of the sport has kind of ceased to happen and it's it's been yeah it's been a really weird couple of months without sport being around because it's kind of always kicking up into like this is the big climax of the season and and we'd be uh well into we would be a good few days into the uh, european championships now if uh in an alternate timeline alternate universe um yeah but it's really really exciting to to see everything kick off again i would have like to have seen league 1 and 2 um get concluded as well um but obviously the teams in, in those leagues have got their own prerogatives and they've decided to to vote to end those seasons early but it would have been nice for the integrity of the competition to have them played out uh, behind closed doors even uh, even if it wouldn't be particularly viable for for all of the teams
0: yeah, Luke, as Josh mentioned, these um, 1 and 2 were, were drawn to a close um, and, and finished on a points-per-game basis. I, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that decision. Was, was it kind of inevitable?
4: Well, I think the, pro- the problem was it wasn't viable to restart the season. We had Stevenage, chairman, saying that it was going to cost the club £140,000 alone just to test the players, let alone bring them back from furlough, pay the players. So I don't think, especially in League Two, that it was really viable to restart the season. That said, I don't really agree. And I, I suppose there's no perfect solution, but the points per game basis doesn't really work, considering that all these different sides have played different clubs. There's a reason why you play every club twice in the season, and that's because that's the only fair way to do it. So in, in terms of the resolution of the season, I think it's incredibly complicated. And I'm sure, as we'll allude to later, with um, Steven and Maccasfield scrapping away only three points apart from each other at the bottom of League Two. You know, people's jobs are going to be on the line. Whichever team gets relegated there, that could be a few dozen people getting released. So it's been difficult. But overall, if the overwhelming majority of clubs in League One and League Two said, we think this is the right direction, you can't really counteract that you've got to go with the majority
0: yeah it's interesting what you were saying about the the relegation battle as well in league 2 of course normally two teams would be relegated but due to Barry's expulsion from from the the football league earlier in the season it's just the one side and currently stevenage occupy that that bottom position but Macclesfield, who, who as as you said, a three points ahead of them, they've already suffered two points um, deductions due to financial mismanagement, and and there's a chance that um, that they could actually face a, a third penalty. What what were your thoughts on on that, Josh?
2: It's a uh, it's a very very tricky one, isn't it? And and you were never gonna get you were never gonna get a, a resolution that would that would favour everybody. I mean. We're talking about uh, Berry's expulsion from from the league as well. You, you've got to look at Bolton as well and the teams that played Bolton in League One. Some of them played youngsters, academy players, at the start of the season and picked up three points, and that wasn't available for other teams who had to play a, a more full-strength Bolton side after they'd made a few sign-ins. But, yeah, you've got to feel particularly sorry for... Uh, for Stevenage who have have a game in hand on on Macclesfield and, and were only three points behind yes they they did have far inferior goal difference they had uh, they had 11 goal difference less than them so I don't see there being an 11 goal swing in in a game for Stevenage but you do feel like with them only being three points behind Macclesfield with with quite a lot of football left nine nine ten games of football left that it could have it could have swung round pretty pretty swiftly for them and yeah you remember that Macclesfield Town also were deducted points as as you mentioned and yeah relegation and promotion stuff I think the playoffs obviously they're going to try and play the playoffs but for a team like Sunderland as much as I uh, I take the Mick out of them and uh, and revel in their uh, in their obsolete um, performances and their their uh, dismantling of of their team to be honest Uh, they were only three points off the automatic promotion spots and then they're not going to get a chance of of going up and it could be potentially financially very very damaging for a club like Sunderland to spend a third season in League One
0: and moving back to the the Premier League the action resumes on on Wednesday night with Sheffield United traveling to, to Aston Villa I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the home side. Um, currently, Villa sit in, in 19th position, two points off of safety as it stands. Luke, do you, see, do you see them managing to get out of, of the bottom three? And do you think the, the return of key players like John McGinn could help them to, to get out of, of the, the bottom three?
4: Well, the lucky thing is that they have a game in hand. So if they can somehow claw a win together there, then they'll be out of the relegation zone. I think you make a good point about John McGinn, because a lot of people say that Aston Villa, they're a one-club managed, the Jack Grealish show, but indeed it isn't. And personally, I, I do think they are going to escape. I think that, that they've been in a better run in this half of the season. And when you're comparing them to, I mean, are we going to say Norwich, in my opinion, are gone, they're down? I look at Bournemouth and I think their form under Eddie Howe, they've only got seven points in the last 10 games, they're doing horrendously. So I think not only does the game in hand work in their favour, but also just the absolutely abhorrent form of every other team around them. The only sticking point I have is that Watford have had a huge resurgence as well. And we know that they have one certain manager who has managed to pull off a great escape in recent years. So I think it will come down to Aston Villa or Watford for the third side to be going down.
2: I think it's important to remember as well that this has never happened before in football. There's never been a prolonged period of time. And there's never been games played behind closed doors uh, to finish off a season. And we've seen in the Bundesliga, like the home advantage has been slashed in half statistically, about 21% of the home teams actually win games now and the away teams are winning about 47 percent of the time which is absolutely incredible how that's flipped on its head like that and I don't know whether that's just because of the the um, fixtures that were being played at that time whether there were stronger teams playing away from home in the last couple of game weeks for for the Bundesliga but it's going to be very very interesting because teams like Bournemouth are going to have are going to have had a period of reflection to see where everything's gone wrong like they wouldn't have been able to have previously they would have just had to keep going week on week and they've been they'll have been able to recoup themselves they'll have been able to get themselves in a mentally better place and a mentally stronger place and it's really going to be a very very interesting relegation battle and I think there's going to be a, a lot more twists and turns than, than we have seen and I, I think even a team like Newcastle United my team I don't think they're even safe at the moment. I don't think you can say that for certain because of the way that the season's gone.
0: And one team that is safe, though, is Sheffield United, the visitors. And I don't think many people would have expected that before the season. Now, if they win on Wednesday against Villa, that would put them back into fifth position. And Luke, do you actually see this fairytale season finishing in a top four finish,
4: possibly, for United? You see, the the wonderful thing about me is that I like to sit on the fence, and even though it might hurt to sit on the fence, um, literally. I think they do have a chance of finishing in the top four. I I think the thing that will be in their favour is not only, like you say, they've had an outstanding season and quite tactically innovative under Chris Wilder, but also the fact that the run-ins of a lot of the sides above them, are not that favourable. You look at Chelsea, they've still got Leicester, they've still got Liverpool, they've still got City, and indeed, they've still got Sheffield United. So Sheffield United do have the opportunity to leapfrog these sides just by coming into contention with them. Um, I mean, from those fixes I just mentioned, Chelsea only got two points out of those four games in the first half of the season. Are they going to be able to adapt and play better this time? I'm not so sure. That said, I think Manchester United... for for whatever reason, I feel like they might have something up their sleeve. I know Solshar has been under a lot of pressure pretty much ever since his honeymoon period ended, but they've got five of the bottom seven left to play. And if they can beat them, I I think it'll be quite difficult for Sheffield United to pick up. I would also say though, Wolves aren't out of it either. Wolves aren't out of it. So I think there's more teams. I think you can look down even to Tottenham in eighth, who maybe. Stick a chance of getting in the top four. Yeah, it,
0: it looks like it's going to be a, a really exciting um, finish to the league. And Josh, a, a key game this week already is going to be Spurs-Man United in that race for fourth. Do you, do you see that as as being quite a key game, kind of setting the tone for for the rest of the season?
2: I do, I do, absolutely. And we're going to see just how how much these players uh, are ready for the rest of the season. Obviously, it's been longer than than the usual. Uh, off-season for them and yeah I, I don't see it going any other way than Manchester United nicking a win there um they've really come into a bit of form obviously form is a little bit useless at the moment um because of the break but yeah the, the players that they've got at their disposal and the style of football that Mourinho favours uh with Spurs and he hasn't really got too many good results with Spurs this season so far um I think yeah Man United will, Man United will, will nick that one and it will be very very interesting because I think it'll be a bit more of a technical game than we've seen before because I don't I don't see the uh the pace of the game being played at the same level obviously these are elite athletes and they've been able to train but they've been training from home they'll not have been using all of the gyms and everything uh, so I think I think we'll we'll see a little bit more of a technical game and I think tactics are going to be very very important in in this latter period of of the season in the last 10 games we're going to see a lot of tactics and of course you've got the the five substitutes now so uh, I imagine Jose Mourinho will be using those to his full disposal uh, probably in the first half if the players aren't (laughs) aren't reacting the way he wants them to and moving on to
0: the the championship which also resumes um, this week Currently, Leeds and West Bromwich Albion are sitting in the the two automatic promotion places. Luke, do you think this is the year that Leeds finally end their 16-year absence from the top flight?
4: I think the exile, we can almost safely say, is coming to an end. Marcelo Bielsa has had them absolutely flying this season. And they've caught up a lot with West Brom because just in February, they were seven points behind and now the one point ahead. They are, in my opinion, the favourites for the title. I think the one issue with them is that Kiko Casilla, who, who of course, you know, the goalkeeper used to play Real Madrid, Espanol. he's currently still serving his ban for racism towards uh, Jonathan Lico at Charlton. And he's still got six games of that left to serve. They do have options in replacement. uh, Meslier um, from Lorient, who's uh, kept two clean sheets in his two games with them. But he's 20 years old. I mean, that's like sticking me in the team, surely. And uh, I suppose you could say that that is the one problem that Leeds have. Uh, That said, West Brom as well, they're very impressive. They've got pretty much a Premier League squad. So I think with one point between them, you can't predict who's going to come out on top. But I think that the the difference between them and Fulham and Brentford, who are trailing behind, is, is too great for the Chasers to catch up to.
2: Do you agree with that, Josh? I I do think that um, that Leeds United will be a Premier League team next year. I'm, I'm looking at the um, at the playoffs actually, and you've got teams like Millwall and, and Blackburn that aren't too far off. That are only two and three points off, respectively. I mean, could you imagine Millwall in the Premier League? I'm just trying to think of that working in terms of safety for the Premier League players and indeed all other Premier League fans. So, a West Ham Millwall Premier League derby would be a lethal affair. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly a very close table, um, closer than it has been at other points uh, in in Championship seasons. When you think of of some teams kind of running away with with the league and with the with the top two three places, it, it certainly seems like Leeds and, and West Brom will be in the Premier League next season.
0: And and Luke, if we look at the the other end of the table, um, Luton are currently six points of safety, um, but, but they brought back Nathan Jones after his ill-fated spell at, at Stoke. Do you think that, that his um, second appointment at the club will give them the impetus to escape the, the relegation zone?
4: I do think so. It's a big ask because they're six points off. But when you're appointing a new manager at this time of the season, you really want somebody who knows the club. We all talk about the bounce effect of having a new manager, and that can work. But I think having a familiar face for players who have been at the club for a number of years, who he's managed to get promoted, is really, really important. So I think that Luton Town stick a, a pretty good chance. That said, it is six points away. I, I, I can't see Hull City under Grant McCann crumbling that easily. And so I think Luton are going to have to work incredibly hard if they're going to somehow escape the relegation zone because they, they, alongside Barnsley, they are the obvious favourites.
0: And Josh, one of the, the biggest stories over the last few months has involved your club, Newcastle, and the, the proposed takeover for a reported £300 million um, by a, a consortium headed by the, the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. Now, of, of course, this has caused a lot of controversy due to um, the the head of, of the, the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, um, his links to to um, the murder of, of the journalist, Kamal Khashoggi. Um, I, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that, because there was a recent survey which, which said that I think 96% of Newcastle fans were, were still in favour of, of the takeover in spite of, of those allegations. Are you one of those?
2: I, w- I would like to see the takeover go through. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we, we've, got to, we've got to just say it as it is. The human rights record of Saudi Arabia is appalling. Um, as are the um, the allegations of the pirating of of the Premier League property, and and that's I believe the this the sticking point for the for the takeover at the moment is is that be in Sports have have lodged a, a letter to the Premier League to to say that their assets have been stolen by the Saudi Arabian backed B out Q provider who have been stealing their their games and and showing them for free. Um or not, not for free, sorry, they've been selling them. Um, which is, yeah, illegal. Which is obviously the Premier League runs on money and if if somebody's been stealing their money, it's it's not a good look. Um but again, you you might want to keep your enemies closer than than your friends. In terms of the takeover, I think a lot of people are disenfranchised with, with Mike Ashley's term at the club, um, myself being one of them. He's he's not particularly invested very smartly. When you look at the 40 million spent on Joe Linton this summer, um, the running down of Rafa Benitez's contract, replacing him with Steve Bruce, it's been a lot of questionable decisions in recent history. Of course, we've got the, the two relegations as well in his tenure as, as owner and Newcastle hadn't been relegated um, for a good, good few years since, uh, since uh, before Mike Ashley took over. It's, definitely a, a very tricky one for a supporter to to see whether you would you would want these kind of people running your club but you've got to remember that if you have that amount of money anybody who has that amount of money is, has not got it completely morally and has not got it by being completely angelic um, i think all money is is dirty money to some extent and on a similar on a similar. Thing you wouldn't want to say no to this amount of investment in in any of your clubs, Um and for Newcastle fans to be sold this this dream of of having this amount of money and, and having the whole wealth of of a country akin to the likes of Manchester City being bought out by uh, Sheikh Mansour back in two thousand and eight, I think it was it's uh it's very exciting as a Newcastle fan to see to think what what might come in the future but at the same time you've got to be you've got to be aware of of the abuses that have that have gone on in Saudi Arabia what I will say about the public investment fund is that it's not actually run by uh Mohammed bin Salman who's the crown prince it's run by um a man called al-Ramayan um as, which means it's separate it's a separate entity to the Saudi Arabian government and that's probably where they'll be looking to see whether there there is a, a certain level of autonomy away from the from the from the government and that's why the the uh the director and owner's tests are uh taken so long but i think at the moment it's it's kind of sitting on a knife edge it could could go either way um i do think mike actually wants to sell the club and i do think there will be another bid to to buy the club from another another consortium or, or another Wealthy, wealthy person um, if this deal does fall through. Um, my feeling is that it'll go through because uh, the opportunities for the Premier League to actually sell television rights in Saudi Arabia would be huge. Um, it would increase the Premier League's revenues. It would make the, the top six, which is already being dented by Leicester City and, and Wolves and Sheffield United this season, it would make the idea of the top six uh, more open it would be more exciting at the top of the table so I think purely from a business perspective whilst there have been the abuses of of the uh, TV rights being stolen uh, there is a, there are a lot of opportunities for the Premier League to to make good of this. And
0: have you allowed yourself to dream of of seeing the likes of Gareth Bale and, and James Rodriguez lighting up St James's Court next season? I've, uh, I've got back on my kit
2: I've got Mbappé on my kit already, Mbappé (laughs) 7 for for next season. So uh, if it doesn't go through, I'm going to look a little bit foolish. (laughs) And and Luke, as as someone who's
0: um, not necessarily got rose-tinted glasses on, what are your views of, of this proposed takeover?
4: I think Josh is a very reasonable young man. And I think that unlike some fans that you might see on social media, he's not completely carried away with this romantic vision of James Rodriguez and Felipe Coutinho. And this Guardians of the Galaxy or Galacticos assembling in the Northeast. However, I just think based off the evidence that we have, it is too big an ethical issue posed to the Premier League because it can be a watershed moment that if we admit um the, the people at Newcastle will Bin Salman, okay, doesn't run, but he does chair the public investment fund, so he still is involved with it. If we allow them into the Premier League, and I I can't say 100% that they've done what they've been accused of doing, but there's very strong evidence. Who knows who else we can accept into the Premier League? And I think that whilst Josh is right in saying that a lot of the money is dirty money all around the Premier League, you're looking at Mike Ashley, he himself doesn't seem to have treated anybody in an ethical manner for a very long time. I would rather have somebody who maybe had some petty contractual issues with some part-time workers than a a consortium linked to somebody who has been responsible probably for the murder of a journalist so I do not like this idea at all of Newcastle being taken over and also as Josh says it would make the top six race more competitive which for a Liverpool fan isn't very good at all because we're just coming into our heyday now so
2: we don't we are, you about, are you worried about worried anyway. about dropping out of the top six? <laughs> well, You
4: can just see it, can't you? last day of the season, Felipe Coutinho cuts in from the left and smashes it into the top corner and maybe Newcastle will win the league against Liverpool. We can't be having that. We've got enough to contend with already.
2: If you talk about the, the ethics and, and stuff, if this is blocked on that, I think then the, the Premier League have another conundrum in that the Manchester City deal was accepted and ratified, and the the Qatari, the Abu Dhabi investment there, uh, with their human rights issues, although that hasn't been worked into the owners and directors test, uh, it is certainly something that is being scrutinised for for this deal, and and there will be a, a lot of pressure, I think, from from certain corners for them to revisit the suitability of the ownership of Manchester City and other clubs like I said, uh, Sheffield United also have a Saudi Arabian owner who is attached to the royal family, um, which again in itself is is another issue for the Premier League, for for the impartiality when Newcastle plays Sheffield United, what's going to happen if they're both owned by members of the Saudi royal family?
0: Uh, it will it, be interesting to, to see the, the findings of the, the Premier League's in investigations, but potentially very exciting times uh, on the cards for for Newcastle fans and thank you both uh, Josh and Luke for your thoughts and I'll now pass over to Ben who's got an interview with the outgoing president of the American Football Society.
1: Hi Sam, this is Sam Sam Bird, the outgoing president of the Du American Football Club, and uh, I've just got a couple of questions for you, if if that's okay. Yeah, Uh, of course. Welcome to Purple Radio and Sports Feed. First question I'd like to ask: How are you? How are you doing during lockdown? And what does a Bucks National Championship semi-finalist get up to in his spare time?
5: (laughs) Um, Well, obviously I stayed up in Durham to start off with to get through my exams, and I've come back home. extremely lucky that I come from near Portsmouth so there's been quite a few walks down the beach and uh, I'm about to invest in a paddleboard to keep the fitness going and trying to get ready for next season if it hopefully goes ahead.
1: How did you get involved into American football and how do you encourage others to get involved with the game both here in Durham and in the the wider UK? Okay um, so my
5: story goes is I've got family that live in Miami so as a Growing up, I'd go and visit my granddad and my uncle and they'd take me to the Miami Dolphins. So I was a big fan. And then when I come to university, uh, three years ago, there's obviously there's the university team. So it's an ideal. Also, like, I used to play rugby. So it's quite a good transition between the sports.
1: Of course.
5: Um, anybody looking to get into American football, if you're at university, most I think there's a, over 100 teams now. And there's obviously a varied league structure throughout the country. Um, but if you're not a university, um, there's various youth teams up and down the country. All you have to do is visit the uh, British American Football Association website, and they've got a list of teams, youth and adult. And it's a great entry sport. Most people, I'll probably say, I've played for Swindon Storm, which is where my father lives. Um, And they've got a great youth structure and quite a lot of people vary from the age of 18 all the way up until I think there was a 49-year-old who was doing it to get a bit fit. So
1: So really a a variety of ages.
5: Yeah, it's a great sport for everybody. And it's not, um, yeah, depending on where you live, there's better teams and worse teams. But I played for a Division 2 team last summer and it's great because it's a good laugh it's not as competitive as it is in the US. So it's, you can have a good, good laugh with the opposition team. Obviously when I play for Durham, it's a lot more competitive. So my mind changes and I'm not quite so friendly with the opposition team, but it's, it's definitely a spot I'd encourage anybody to get into.
1: It's quite interesting the setup you've got with the Durham Saints in that you bring over American scholars who have played mm-hmm. for US college teams Let's... and then you have the likes of beginners who've never played sport in their life. How does that set up sort of work? Because it's unusual in terms of an elite sport. Well, obviously
5: it's, I say it's a fairly new sport. It's been in the UK since the 80s, but it's only it's seen a, a resurgence in the past five, 10 years. Um, and the American scholarship students, we've had luck this season. We had uh, players that, that were captains of their division one college teams who played with players that were in the NFL now. We had, um, there's two players this season that were on practice squad for NFL teams and actually having their wealth of knowledge brings on the rookie players, the brand new players to the sport and it's, it develops faster. That's why you can compare some of the, the British players that have only played for a year or two at Durham to a university that doesn't have the resources or to bring in these Americans and it raises the game of the British players by, by quite a lot.
1: You play on the offensive line. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that position and what it entails.
5: Um, so effectively, my job is to protect the quarterback, to allow him to either uh, or to pass the ball. So we normally have an American quarterback. Or on the flip side of it, it's the job of us five guys on the line to punch a hole and to allow somebody to run with the ball. So it's a very fit generally you'll see like i weigh about 300 pounds and um, we had a player this year jack who weighs about the same as me but he's six foot six i believe um which obviously you've seen he's an absolute beast
1: yes i've collided with him in training more than once <laughs> like that
5: um, so it's generally a big guys it's a tough position many little niggly injuries um but it's, I love it. It's, it shows how included you can be because in my position, it's not so much about your you've got to be fast and strong and it goes on your body size. So some people that might feel excluded in other sports because they don't have the fitness in American football, there is a position
1: for everybody. It's match day. How do yes. you prepare before the game? Uh, me personally or the team? Uh, both it would be quite okay, so, here.
5: Uh, the team will probably get there about three hours before as president this year I'd be there probably about an hour before everybody else setting up the kit making sure all of the jobs little jobs that needed doing on game day were done um, and then for me personally I like to get changed about an hour before listen to some music, get hyped up get in the zone because you do put your body through quite a brutal process in a three hour game um quite a lot of the team do that and then you'd have about half it's the warm-up's quite long and it's physical as well you you warm up at game speed with full contact and it goes on for about half an hour 45 minutes so from my experience my first ever game I was out of breath and sweating and tired before I'd even started the game so that's something that you've got to get used to
1: I mentioned that you and the Durham Saints made the semi-finals of the Bucks National Championships, winning the Northern Division, being yes. the number one seed in your division, and leaving most of the teams you played in your wake. How did it feel to hear the news that the season was being curtailed? and How big a chance do you think that you could have been national champions?
5: I was absolutely, personally, I was absolutely gutted. I know a lot of the players were as well, um, and coaches. It's, it, it was two days before the semi-final which we'd secured home field advantage for and obviously this is my personal opinion but the previous time in 2018 when we won the national championship we had a very solid team but a lot of it was players the bond between players and they went undefeated the whole season this year i think that the league was is much stronger from previous seasons um but I, I honestly believe that we were going to go all the way. There, there was obviously this is a prediction because we didn't play the semi-finals. But UE have a very strong team, and that was going to be our biggest challenge. And we were all hyped up for it. We were looking forward to playing UE. and it was it's quite gutting.
1: However, it wasn't all plain sailing. You lost to Sterling and Leeds Beckett early on the uh, on the road early in the season. How did you keep the team motivated during that difficult period, especially after the loss against Leeds, where they won the game in the final few seconds?
5: Uh, it's very tough, actually. For me, this year, being the president, I was looking at morale of players and the time off. And in the sport you put, we have training three, four days a week. Um, people are putting their bodies on the line and trying to do their degrees. So it's the sort of, we took the stance of ease off of the players, Give them a rest, remotivate, so that we did start going, um, going, for a bit more film and a bit more classroom and team bonding, opposed to just hitting the training field, which is obviously it's a big thing in other sports. A team might be together for many years. In American football, every season we start from scratch. There'll be probably about twenty players from the previous season, and the rest are recruited from, um, like yourself from the university or, and we have about five to 10 scholarship students from the US.
1: Yes. Going into next season, how difficult is it going to be if there's no vaccine by October? With the logistics of the University American football team with around 40 players, seven coaches and a physio, could you see the season not happening at all? So there's
5: been talk with... Um, there's a, a faith, private Facebook group between all of the, the current presidents and some of the uh, BAFA, who are the regulatory body in the UK, um, talks between all of us regarding what's going to happen. Now, at the moment, nothing's been confirmed. It's just all of our opinions, but there's so many factors coming into it. For, for example, a lot uh, universities might not be back in October. So no matter if there is a vaccine or not, We have a lot of international students on the team, not just scholarship students. So, the incoming president, uh, Will Evans, he himself lives in California. So, over this summer, I've been obviously helping him out and trying to teach him how the club works. But there's a lot of things where I've had to continue doing because he's not here and he doesn't fully understand it. Um, You've got the issues of that. And then if, for example, Durham might not return for the first term, but other universities might. Um, there's talks that they were looking to potentially postpone the season until the second term, so post-Christmas. But that poses even more issues because a lot of our players are rookies and have never played the sport before. And there's, a player has to do so much, obviously you experienced it this year, to be safe in the sport. Because if you don't understand what's going on, there can be big injuries. I've, I've yeah. witnessed one of their neck injuries and concussions. Um, so that poses another problem. And obviously, this is my personal opinion, but I don't believe there will be a competitive season this year unless something drastically changes and life goes back to normal. I believe that this season will more than likely um, be friendlies with local universities if we can get to that point. So it won't be the competitive season we're used to, but if we are back and everything's going okay, it'll, it, it'll take that form, so there's less travel, there's all of these other issues.
1: That's really interesting to hear your own personal opinion. American football is growing massively in the UK with NFL games being played every year in the UK. When do you think we will see an NFL franchise in the UK?
5: I think it's coming, if I'm being honest. Um, obviously, there was the talk of the Jacksonville Jaguars owner, the Fulham owner, he's, he was going to purchase Wembley Stadium, which was a very big hint. Um, well, I believe it's a very big hint towards him moving. Cause the Jacksonville Jaguars is one of the newest teams um, in, in the NFL, and they don't have a massive fan base. So quite often their stadium isn't full, um, and like my personal team is the Miami Dolphins, and although the stadium might not be full, it's integral to Miami.
1: Do you well, think that they're going to be uh, Jacksonville will be even more encouraged by, to be, move to the UK? The fact that Tom Brady is moving to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you've got the Miami Dolphins already in that state, Jacksonville and Florida there's three teams in the state. Do you yes. think that will encourage them even more to say, "Let's move to London, let's start afresh, and let's build a new franchise"?
5: That's that's the franchise I can see moving. Um, obviously, it might might not happen. It might happen in a different form, but realistically, with the the, the potential stadium purchase by Khan, um, the fact that Jacksonville play every single season in the UK for the since they've been doing NFL Europe. There's a, a, quite a big fan base for the Jacksonville Jaguars growing over here. I, I can realistically
1: see that happening. And I like to ask all my guests, especially the sports people who come on the show. And I've asked this previously, but what piece of advice would you give to any aspiring American football player?
5: Work hard. So, it's, it's it understand the sport. So, you don't, I don't mean that as in playing. So, I've watched for years, and it's very different to play the sport to watch the sport. Um, but it's it's getting that, working hard, working hard off of the field as well, and putting in 110%. When you think you've got nothing left, there's always more you can give.
1: And finally, if there is a season next academic year, where will the Durham Saints finish?
5: National Champions.
1: That's what I like to hear, Sam. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank right. you very much. Next up, we've got a horse racing preview of Royal Ascot with Ben Rochford. Hi, Ben. How are you doing?
6: I am very well. Thank you, Ben. How
1: are you? I am very good. First of all, we, uh, we had the thousand, British 1,000 and 2,000 guineas taking place at Newmarket last week. Um, What would you, can you give a recap to our listeners who didn't necessarily um, attend, uh, watch the um, fixture?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, They're both really exciting races, um, as they are in the the flat season, really. Um, The first 1,000 guineas, yeah. Um, So it was six wins for um, trainer Aidan O'Brien. And it it was the horse love on board, Ryan Moore. um, It's a really, really good race. Um, perfect position, Re- really, really, um, running really well. It was per- perfect position for uh, the whole race, um, and and it, it, just, it just got ahead at the end, really. Um, it was it was up against a big, big contender of quadrilateral. Um, yeah, but um, I did see it. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it, 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 it ran really well. It was a tough race, but um, it was kind of on the outside for like, the whole race, uh, and he judged it really well. Uh, and came home really, um, yeah. And the 2,000 guineas uh, also fantastic. Um, Cameco, uh clinched it for um, Andrew Balding, who was uh, on board Ocean Murphy. It was a fantastic jockey. Really, really like him, um, and really loved this race. It was really fantastic the way um, Ocean guided guided the horse really throughout the race. He was kind of in the centre. I don't know if you watched this one as well, but he yes, I was did. At, uh, In the centre throughout the whole thing really, and then found a little gap, um, there was a bit of a sprint at the front and he just he kind of uh, took about the centre and uh, guided it home really. Travelled really well, um, switched well, so yeah, fantastic really. And it, there was also a record time as well, I think, on uh, on the it was 1 minute 34, I think, One minute 34 seconds, it was a record time, so fantastic race really, yeah.
1: Now both the thousand and two thousand guineas are two fifths of what are known as the British Classics. For our listeners who don't know what this means, could you explain to them what the British Classics are and what sort of distance they are and what age a horse can enter them?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of the horse race is split into so obviously it's, it's jumps and uh, and flat racing, uh, And. Tends in into summer, it's, it it turns into the flat racing season. Uh, but the British classics, yeah, they're, um, they're kind of five long-standing uh, Group 1 horse races. Uh, group 1 means just basically just the highest level of um, horse racing, so like kind of the Premier League of horse racing, really. Um, and this is held during the flat season. So yeah, it's the, uh, as you said, the 2,000 guineas, the 1,000 guinea stakes, um, the Epsom Oaks, the Epsom Darwin and the St. Ledger stakes uh, make up the five British classics. Um, and kind of kind of how they split, the split into kind of three legs, really. Um, so the first ones are the New Market Classic. So the, what's just happened, the 1,000 guineas, the 2,000s. Um, and the 1,000 one is restricted to fillies, so female horses. Um, it's kind of regarded as the fillies classic, really. Um, and then the 2,000 um, is open to both sexes, so colts and fillies, but it's predominantly colts, cults really, um, who compete. Um, and then the second one is, is the Derby and the Oaks, uh, very big races, uh, ridden over about a mile, mile, a mile and two furlongs, two, three furlongs, something like that. Um, uh, and again, the Oaks follows kind of the Phillies classic. Uh, so they kind of go from the 1,000 to the Oaks, and then for the Derby, the Epsom and Derby, it's the 2,000 guineas to the Derby, really. Um, although, yeah, theoretically, the, the, you could have Phillies and Colts doing uh competing in the derby but yeah it's it's predominantly um colts and the final one is the st ledger one uh, held at doncaster which is kind of the last one really of um of the five and that's a mile and six furlongs uh, again he's open to both sexes of horse really
1: you mentioned the derby which is probably the biggest horse race in in britain yeah. um do you think they need to increase the prize money to keep up with the likes of the uh Dubai World Cup, which has got a prize fund of around $12.5 million. Uh, those sorts of races to really get the best jockeys to ride in there every year.
6: Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't see why not. It attracts more. Um, it'll attract better jockeys, better horses, um, and in turn will increase kind of the spectator's view in horse racing. Um, it's really important to keep that up. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, although there are some, there are bigger races within... Like you can, you have the Cheltenham Gold Cup and stuff, which is obviously different to flat racing, but yeah, I think it would be worthwhile to flat racing, definitely.
1: Um, you mentioned the Philly Love won the thousand guineas, a three to one yeah. shot. He beat the 11 to four quadrilateral, who was a very good horse, who is a very good horse, yeah. um, daughter of that iconic Frankel. What chances has the Philly Love got of winning the other upcoming British classics, do you think?
6: Um, a fantastic chance, really. Um, so it's, she'll be in a, she'll be running in the Investing Oaks. Uh, I think it's the start of July, really. And uh, I think Skybet have a, a real, real favourite now. It's clear six to four, I believe, um, with quadrilateral now in it. I think it's sevens or eights. So a clear favourite. Um, and at 12 furlongs should be really within a capability, really. Um, I, I, I remember I read um, an interview with um, the trainer, Aidan O'Brien, who kind of said um, the distance from the the thousand guineas to the Oaks should be should be well suited for? Her. So I t- I kind of tend to agree with that, and I think it's a good step up, uh, which she can easily win. Not not to kind of rule out Quadrilateral necessarily, but I just think I like I think she'll have to get out early to do well because um, it was a, it was a fast pace in the guineas, so you have to do that to keep up. But yeah, I mean I I, I love is is a really fantastic one and should win that really.
1: Uh, Kamika, as you mentioned, won the two thousand guineas by a neck, beating the previously unbeaten Pinatubo. What chances has this horse got of winning the other upco- upcoming British classics?
6: Um, fantastic, really. It, it was a, like, like I said, it was a fantastic race for me for Oisin Murphy. Um, I really like this horse. Um, I, did, I, did, I I also read an interview on what Ocean Murphy said about um, the race, and he said it was fantastic. Like she. Like he got tired throughout the race, um, it was quite, so an extra fur furlongs really for the Derby might be a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think it could be up to it. Um, I think I, I believe Skybet have it as the favourite now, um, which is which is quite yeah, it's quite obvious really. But there's also there's some there's some good horses that like uh, that are running in the Derby. I um, Vatican City um, ran really really well uh, in the Irish guineas, the Irish version of the two thousand.
1: Heard you have, um, had a flutter on him as well.
6: Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, it, yeah, I did. Uh, it was. Um, it came in second. I so little each way bet. So I was very, very uh, happy with that skinskin one. Uh, it's fantastic horse, unbeaten. But no, I had a little each way on Vatican, um, and I'd really, really be keen for that again in the Derby. Um, it's, I think it, it's at twelve to one now, down from twenty. So clearly, there's some interest uh, in the market. But yeah, it's a really nice turn of foot. Um, again, at the end of the, the, end of the 2000 Irish guineas. So yeah. Um, but I mean, generally the, the, the 2000 guineas, the, the, the English one, it was a kind of unique really um, because of uh, Pinatubo at least, um, A lot of the, lot of the horses hadn't raced in the last six months, really with everything going on. Um, so Pinatubo, yeah, it's a fantastic horse, but we'll have to see how they match up in, the, in, in the Epsom Dobby. But Cameco, no, really fantastic. Could really see him doing, Really,
1: really well. Uh, speaking of Pinatubo he faces Palace Pier in the Group One Saint James Palace Stakes next week in at Royal Ascot. Do you think he can recover from his last race and sprint his way to victory?
6: Um, I think I think Pinatubo is a, a really really talented, really talented colt, um, and I think a lot of evidence for that. Um, and I think he will rebound from the loss um, the other week and make, and go on to kind of have a have a a successful career and win a lot of big races, um, and I, I think the Palace Stakes is kind of a good platform to him to um, to begin with that. Um, but I think Palace P is a really, really fantastic horse. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, he ran in uh, the Newcastle, uh, Newcastle the other week, um, ran really, really well. Uh, again, a great turn of foot, really good acceleration, um, and he's I think he's about four to one. I think for the uh, the race on Saturday, so. I'd be I'd be really keen for for that. I think Wichica oh, can is is the, the favourite for the Palace Stakes. Um, who also ran really well. Um, so yeah,
1: he yeah, was the favourite going into the um, the uh, two thousand guineas. Um yeah. but he just didn't just didn't do it that time.
6: No, I didn't. He got he got second in the end, which is which is not a bad result. Uh, which is. Which kind, kind of reflects his um, his price within the palace stakes, really a, a, a favourite. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an exciting race, really. Um, but Pinatuba, I, I don't know if you've seen this as well, but there's there was a lot of talk about him being regarded as um, kind of the next Frankel of flat
1: racing. Yes, um, I have seen that,
6: which I just found very, very quite actually quite amusing, really, and um, kind of the result last week, kind of. Um, illustrates that <laughs> i just i don't think uh frank i mean pretty was a, good, a really good horse but frank was like was a freak really like a,
1: yeah i mean freak. there's never going to be another horse like no, no, again no. i don't think
6: no absolutely I, I don't think you can be mad like a freak nature machine so it's yeah so it can't be matched. but yeah fantastic horse we'll have to see we'll have to see uh
1: the big race next week at royal ascot is the gold cup who have you got down as your picks for that race
6: I mean, you can't really shy away, can you? From from, I mean, the fantastic that is Stradivarius on board Frankie de Tori. Um I, mean, I, I honestly, I'm so excited for this. I, I remember watching it last year and the year before. I went um, two years ago um, on the Gold Cup day, which was it was just fun. What an atmosphere! It was fantastic. Um, I love Stratovarius as a horse. Um, it at, at this distance as well. He had a race a couple of. Uh, I think it was a week ago in um, uh, the Coronation Cup. Uh, wasn't quite his race, a bit to uh, different distance, but no, this this is him to a T really. Um, yeah, he, he did lose against Hugh um, Gardens as well, which was um, which was really interesting. But and now interesting that Hugh Gardens is not running in in the Gold Cup, so I don't think you can really shy away from Stratovarius really. It's just it's such a game changer. Him not Hugh Gardens not being there, the Tory on board, perfect distance. Yeah, she's she goes for me. She bolts her. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember being at um, uh, Newmarket races once, and a guy just said, "Put your money on Stradivarius; it's guaranteed money." That's the sort yeah. of—he's a classic horse. It's an absolute banker, really. You can't, i mean, the odds—the
6: odds aren't great for the Gold Cup, um, which kind of, yeah, which which reflects it really. But I can't see anything helps happening really. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, you could look at Cross Counter as maybe an each way bet. Is it six to one, seven to one? But I mean, Neath Road as well. That one at one at Newcastle, but again, was a Group Three. So can they make the step up? I don't think so. So it's yeah, Stradivarius. I mean, you can't you can't look anywhere else. You'd be a full knock.
1: If Stradivarius wins on Thursday, that would make him a three-time winner of the Gold Cup. Where would that um, rank him in terms of great race horses? Are we talking the likes of Black Caviar, Frankel, those sorts of horses?
6: I mean, what a question that is. <laughs> you could. You could spend hours talking about this one really, couldn't you? Um I mean I think we can all really agree that the goat is Frankel. Um unbeaten in fourteen. I think it's it has now it's an estimation of a hundred million in the breeding shell. I mean it's just it's just crazy, it's inhumane, really it's just crazy. Uh but then yeah, but then you got like you sea of see of stars, you know what I mean? Um the Colt won two thousand guineas, the Derby, the eclipse stage just Fantastic horse there. I think did the treble, did the treble as well um, within the British Classic, which is just unbelievable. And so he he will be ranked. I think I think the Gold Cup on Thursday is huge. Really, like it's it's a bit of a game changer. Doing completing the hat trick is really, it's a big statement. That uh, big big statement. But then also you look at uh, the, like the contemporary horses now. Enable who uh, Frankie Dutoy is also on board with. And in the King yes. George. Um, so it's yeah, there's, there's such a big field out there. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's it's a fantastic question. Like I said, you could spend hours thinking about it but yeah, it'll, it'll certainly be up there. Stradivarius, I love him to bits. So yeah,
1: not to mention Galileo, who has been oh, basically God. the sire of so many horses.
6: Exactly. It, uh, yeah, the, the list is endless, isn't it? Really. That, like the, the, there's, there's so many out there. Like you could go on forever. But yeah, it, it's 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 a it's, it's a pleasure to watch. It's just a very run really, and I'm very excited it's
1: Thursday. The last race I want to speak about is the King Stan Stakes and Batash, yeah. who is a great sprinter. How good a sprinter is he and should he win easily? He's very short odds. I looked last yeah. night. Um
6: I, I'm very, very excited for this race. Um it's it's so, it's so fast, it's over and done with, it's quick. It's um I I I, lo- I love the races like that, really. it's it's it's, it's Really, really exciting. Um, I can't see it going any other way, really. Um, I mean, Patash lost to Blue Point last year and the year before, um, which was unfortunate. But Blue Point isn't running this year, which again yeah. is a ma- which is a massive game changer. Um, you yeah, it'd take a very brave man to bet against um, Patash, really. Um, like, yeah, I mean, they've not been racing since October, which is which is an interesting point, but it doesn't. It, Patash doesn't know how to run a bad race, really, in my opinion. Um, and like I said, yeah,
1: you'd be very brave to, uh, to go against him, but very hard, um, Finally, what do you think about the impact of no spectators will have on the jockeys? I myself have ridden in horse competitions, show jumping with crowds, and I can't hear them. What do you think?
6: Is it see? This is a re- this is a really really good question because he. I've, I've been asked this before just about sport in general um and you have to take each each sport um differently but with horse racing i i think i think it's i think it's absolutely crucial really i think it's 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 such a game changer um i mean i i, I mean I, I was thinking about think about the gold cup this year with a album photo
1: yes lot
6: oh, paul Townend, like he won in the end, but like, it, it was, it was close. It was really, really close. I can't, I can't remember who finished second in that, but, um, I can't remember who finished it, was, but, but the crowd, the crowd helped so much. It is like when you're coming down the home straight, I mean, it's just, it's when, when you hear that crowd, there's no feeling like it really. Even like myself, just standing in the stands. It's just, it, it's, so I couldn't imagine being a jockey, like having that and, uh, and then it just being taken away really. So it will be interesting at kind of, big event like Royal Ascot this week to see um,
1: but no I, d- I do think it's, it's really really crucial really really crucial. and sorry finally one more question who's going to be the leading jockey and who's going to be the leading trainer <sighs> I mean I've got either Frankie DeTorey or Ryan Moore down I was gonna say Ryan, Moore. Ryan
6: Moore's really really on form at the moment um, really really on form um, there's all trainer Sir Michael Stout as well. Um, got some really really good horses in there. might not necessarily be the winner, but I really want to look out for. He's um, got a, got a lovely horse, Queen Power, uh, running in the Queen, a Duke of Cambridge States So, yeah. The it, but yeah, I mean, Ryan Moore really for. Um, I, I could see. I seen. But then, do you shy away from Totori? I don't know. It's 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 a tough
1: one. But yeah, it'd be very interesting to see. Thank you, Ben. And thank you so much for finally having someone on the sports show who likes horse racing as much as me.
6: Thank you. Absolutely. Or
1: probably even more. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, next up, we've got uh, Archie quizzing me on this week's golf. Archie, yes, ben, the, the highlight
0: of, of the week has, of course, been the, the Charles uh, Schwab Challenge. Um, which Daniel Berger won, um, he, he won in a playoff against Colin Morikawa. And I was just wondering if, if you could give a, a recap to our listeners who, who might have missed that.
1: Well, it, Archie, it was a case of people falling away. Jordan Spieth and Roy McIlroy both failed to threaten the lead despite being in strong positions at the start of the day. to mount a challenge to win. It was also a case of missed putts on the 18th with Justin Rose and Bryson DeChambeau lipping out to get into a share of the lead that would have brought both, both of them into a playoff. Uh, Morikawa, a rising star of US goal, failed to convert a putt on 18 or so that would have resulted in the win for him. And uh, the person I feel really sorry for is uh, Jean de Sofle. I mean, he missed a, his putt on 17 literally went around the hole and didn't drop. It was so unlucky and that and that caused him to bogey the hole and if he had piled that, he would have been the playoff as well. But it, in the playoff, Morikawa missed put, uh, played a bad tee shot on the first playoff hole followed by a short miss, missed putt the park which led to Berger's win.
0: And just how big a, a win is this for, for Berger?
1: Absolutely massive win for Berger's career. His, his previous two wins both came at the St. Jude Classic. And due to the high quality of the field in the Charles Schwab uh, Challenge, he jumps from outside the world's top 100 to 31st in the world. Qualifying for all the majors this year, including the rescheduled Masters in November, which is just a massive leap for someone's career. I mean, it puts him completely in Ryder Cup contention if he wins again.
0: And one of the the things we've become accustomed to uh, with sport in the kind of post-COVID uh, times that we're living in is, is no spectators being able to to attend uh, live events. And I was just wondering what. Oh, how much of an impact do you think they've had um, for the, the tournament as a whole and, and actually for the players themselves?
1: I personally think that it depends on the player. I mean, for example, Rory McIlroy said that once he zoned in, he didn't really think about there was no crowd. I mean, Ricky Fowler and Jordan Spieth on their opening two days, they sort of pretended to wave to the crowd and um, put a hand up when they made a birdie or a good putt. So I think it depends player by player. I mean, there's an interesting article in Sky Sports. Rich Beam says that some players will obviously benefit from not having the pressure of people around them. But when it comes to the spect- the viewers, uh, the viewers' uh, atmosphere for the viewer at home, I personally think it was okay compared to other sports, so, such as darts. It worked okay because you could focus on the golf and the skill at hand without being distracted. If it was the Masters and where the atmosphere plays a key role in attracting a large audience. So I would be concerned for the viewer at home, but this was a regular PJ Tour event. You're only going to get your really keen golf fans watching. For me, something like darts relies on the atmosphere to make it watchable, and in that sense, I don't think the viewer experience was effective for the viewers at home in the golf. Okay, and, and before this, this
0: um, competition was allowed to take place, there were quite a few charity events that... that that were held, including, for example, the, the Tailor Made Driving Relief. Um, I, I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about those events.
1: Well, the Taylor Made Driving Relief was a uh, competition, well, not a competition, uh, an exhibition match between Oklahoma State alumni Matthew Wood and Richie, Ricky Fowler versus Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson. And it raised $5.5 million for COVID 19 relief charities. I mean, it wasn't okay. It wasn't an okay match. The quality of golf wasn't great. I mean, they were all mic'd up, so you would expect a bit more chat. I mean, there was there wasn't that much much of banter going on between the players. So you didn't get to really find out about the players like you would normally, which you normally like to. But there was one interesting comment that Roy uh, uh, Matthew Wolf outdrew outdrove uh, Roy McIlroy and commented that he outdrove him. And Roy McIlroy is known as one of the best drivers on tour. And McIlroy replied by saying, "Yeah, but I've won twenty five million dollars on the I Fel- win the FedEx Cup twice." So. Um, <laughs> It, there was a little bit of interaction, but the, the match that I really, really, really liked was the Champions of Charity, which which raised $20 million for charity. This was between Peyton Manning, the American quarterback, and Tiger Woods versus uh, Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson. And there was just... What made the match so good was that there was, there was so much banter between the players. I mean, there was... Woods even remarked that he couldn't keep keep up with Mickelson. And then Mickelson said that he couldn't um he'd be joining the seniors tour in a year's time, so he wouldn't worry. It's stuff like that where you get to know the players a bit more, which makes these exhibition matches so great. And I think if they hold more exhibition matches, then they've got to have the the chat and the the banter between the players because that's what makes it interesting for the fans to learn about the players, what their personalities are like, because golfers can come across sometimes quite bland and media trained in interviews and it's quite nice, it's a refreshing sort of taste to see them being their own personality. And just going back to
0: one of the points you made there about long drives, I saw Colin Montgomery coming out this week um, talking about the fact that the distances that the modern players are capable of hitting the ball is actually, it's so great that some courses are going to become pretty useless in coming years. So in order to resolve this problem, he suggested introducing a tournament ball which only travels 80% or 85% as far as an ordinary ball is now. What were your thoughts on that? Do you think he's got a point?
1: I mean, that debate was led by the fact that Bryson DeChambeau, Hits it 345 yards on the average. 345 yards, sorry, on the first day of competition. Now, that is absolutely incredible. If you're hitting it over 300 yards, you're uh, you're hitting it miles. 345 yards is ridiculous. To so compare that to how I'm a I'm an amateur golfer. I've got handicap of around 11 or 12. I hit it around 245. My brother, who's a county ex county player, hits it about 260, 270. So. That's com- the comparison between the amateurs and the pros. But to hit it 345 yards, it's turning into a different game. I mean, you've, it's basically driver wedge for all these players. And there's no, not much long-iron play. I mean, I was talking to my brother the other day when we were watching the final day of the Charles Schwartz Challenge. I said to him, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? When you and I are hitting driver six, seven iron into a green and they're hitting driver 60 degree lob wedge into a green, that's when it starts to get a bit of a joke. But I don't I think if you took away that long drive, that long drive, it takes away some of the glamour and sort of the attraction towards uh, professional golf. So I think sometimes you might, I think the best way would be to extend courses. So you have the long drives, but you don't, but you don't get rid of, but you still have them playing the long irons into the green. So it's a bit more of a challenge. So That's my opinion on the subject.
0: Yeah, that's maybe a a debate we'll continue to see over the coming years. I'm going to hand back over to you now, Ben, for the the final segment of the show, Any Other Business.
1: Okay, thank you, Archie. Now, the last segment on the show that we've got is Any Other Business. This is a new segment on the show that I created to sort of encourage a bit of debate amongst the pundits on the sports team. Um, The question this week is that I wanted you to find a poignant sports story that was also emotional and caring in uh its uh in its in its promotion of it now i'm going to pass over to luke first to take on his, to put forward his choice uh, and then we'll t- talk to archie luke
4: yeah so it's probably one that a lot of people are familiar with and maybe isn't exclusively this week but marcus rashford um contributing to fair share and helping to feed over 3 million kids, which I think is absolutely sensational. He's raised £20 million for charity, and he's using his leverage and his status and profile in a way that you probably don't see enough from professional athletes. Juan Mata is quite well-renowned for donating to charity, but even the top-level players in any sport, they might come out every now and then and give 1% of their week's wages to charity which isn't anything compared to what Rashford has been doing he's not just been given his money he's been given his time he's been taking part in online gaming competitions which yes it's fun but still he's doing that for charity Um, and he's reserved tickets at United Games for NHS workers so he's really considering the community and putting other people first in a lot of different aspects and that is why now he's being lauded so much. I'm being potentially one of the favorites for BBC Sports Person of the Year sports personality of the year. So I'm nominating Marcus Rashford in his charity work even if he is a Man United player. Over to you Archie. As
0: the old adage goes if it sounds too good to be true it probably is and that was certainly the reaction of the vast majority of Scottish football fans when it was announced that a group of philanthropists was going to to gift cash trap clubs um, millions of pounds um, sh- with no strings attached um, but, but that's what happened last week and earlier in the programme we were talking about you know, multi-million pound takeover deals in the Premier League but the stark reality is for the vast majority of Scottish clubs the COVID-19 pandemic is, has left them facing or uh, staring down the barrel really um, so this, this kind of miracle has actually given them the, the resources that they need to, to get through this difficult time and the, the man behind the, the donation, Edinburgh-based businessman James Anderson, he said that he has seen firsthand over the last few years what a difference clubs can make to, to people's lives and how important they are in, in the community. And I think it's the case that up and down the country, a lot of football clubs really are the lifeblood of their community. So it, it's, um, it's really important uh, that you know generosity like this is enabling clubs to, to fight to, to, to see another day.
1: I mean, both great choices by both of you. I mean, very emotionally pulling, very great choices. And I've, but I've got to go with, sadly, Archie Luke's choice, purely on the basis that we see few football players ever go out on a limb and put charity, donate to charity so much as what he's done. So the winner of any other business this week is Luke Power. Now to finish the show, I'd just like to give you an introduction to what we'd be doing in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we'll be talking about all the usual sports stuff but any, for any other business. We will be inspired by Piers Morgan's life stories. We will be, uh, next year, week's any other business will be, which sports person would you like to interview and why? So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Arrivederci, I've been Sharpie, Archie's been Archie, Luke's been Luke. Thank you very much.